Well, you know, the, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about um, teaching entrepreneurship is because it's not taught. Uh, so if you're out there, the reason why I write my books and the reason why podcasts like these exist, and Eric, my hat's off to you over there. I mean, it's awesome that we're, we're able to teach people now better than ever. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Today we have Ryan Blair, who is a number one New York Times bestselling author, serial entrepreneur, a multi-millionaire, and CEO of Vicellus. Also, check out his documentary on www.nothingtolose.com just to get some more information, but we're going to dig in and find out what his story is. Ryan, how's it going? Um, it's good. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do exactly. Well, you know, Eric, you, you and I have talked about this a little bit in the past, and some people have heard my story. So I'll try to give you like new information uh, that perhaps I haven't you know, let out the can yet. Uh, in 2011, I started a, a venture fund called Hashtag One. And that was because I, had a, I sold my company by Salas in 2008. Uh, and by the time 2011 had come along, the earnout that I had was was um, it was heading toward uh, you know an eight hundred million dollar payday, and so I started the fund knowing that I was going to get this payday, and I wanted to invest in technology companies that were accretive to Vicealis and and you know into my other intellectual interests. So right now, um, hashtag one my fund uh, is kind of similar to the Alphabet Google strategy, although we don't have nearly that amount of money or talent or or good fortune or whatever you want to call it. But hashtag one is my venture fund. I spend most of my time operating that. And then we bought back by Salas in 2014. And so uh, it is a wholly owned portfolio company. But most of our investments will own somewhere between 25 and 49%. Some we own a little bit less like Heal and some of the others. Uh, but you know, we're, we're a fund and we try to invest in technologies that are either going to revolutionize the industries that we're already in uh, or going to give us some good information. Like, for example, Elite Daily was one of our investments, and we invested in that because we wanted to learn about, you know, uh, content, content distribution, uh, syndication, and then uh, most importantly, though, the millennial audience. And so Elite Daily was one of our recent exits that was pretty cool. Got it. Okay. Yep. And so Vicealis, I mean, it sounds like there's an interesting story there. I mean, you know, you were uh, you sold the company, but then, you know, we, we talked about this beforehand. It seems like, uh, or maybe you've done this already, you, you bought the company back. So what's the story, the whole story behind that? Yeah. So, um, I, I, so for one, for everyone on the phone here, I hate multi-level marketing. It is like, I came from traditional business. I'm a technology entrepreneur. Uh, in 2001, I started a company called Sky Pipeline that I later sold to COVAD. And I was, you know, 24 years old when I sold it for 25 million bucks. Now, long story short on that one, I talk a lot about that and nothing to lose. I, my first book about how the venture capitalists got all the money in that transaction for the most part. And I just got some good, a good MBA and how to do business and how to scale and build a business. And I made a little bit of money, but those uh, investors in Sky Pipeline, in fact, uh, one of them was called the Gergen family. 
And at Sky Pipeline, uh, there were two salespeople that kept coming in and out of my office. And they came to me and said, one of them had just inherited a little bit of money from his mom's passing. And he had invested in uh, this company called Visalis. And he asked me to look at it. And, you know, once again, I said, I don't like network marketing. I, I, I despise it, in fact. Uh, uh, so I, I was very skeptical. I looked at it and I wanted to help my friend figure out a way to either get his money back or salvage what looked like a bad investment. In doing so, I met the two co-founders of Visalis. I helped them buy the company or the assets, I should say, of what's called the Free Network, which is a company that had uh, the science behind Visalis. They had the doctor, the idea, and so forth. I bought Visalis for $75,000 in 2005 with my two co-founders. Uh, I never really operated it until after we sold it in 2008. Uh, we sold it in August 2008 in a $32 million deal. For, for everybody on the phone here, checking facts, it's all publicly disclosed if you look at our old SEC filings and so forth. Um, but 2008 sold it, and I had an earnout. Uh, it was a four-year earnout, and it was a multiple of eight times my EBITDA. For those of you who don't know finance, earnings before depreciation, amortization, uh, and uh, taxes and amortization. And, uh, and so we we're doing about 500,000 EBITDA then. The recession hit in 2009, and the company went to near zero, near bankruptcy. In December 2009, we'd accumulated $6 million in debt. Our sales went down from $2.5 million a month down to $600,000 a month and dropping quickly because consumers during the recession didn't want to buy high-priced vitamins, no matter what the premium or quality offering is. And, uh, and the, the public company that bought us wrote us off. Uh, and myself and my two co-founders put our last dollars in to try to salvage it because we'd made some promises that we wanted to make sure we kept. We, we decided we were going to take a completely different business model approach. And we we're going to focus on uh, utilizing challenge marketing, which some people had had challenges before, like the Body for Life challenge and so forth. But we said, hey, what if we just lead with the challenge and then people set their goals on the challenge and then we then serve them the products to achieve their goals? So completely rethink to traditional network marketing. And it was all customer centric. In fact, we have way more customer revenue than we do have revenue from our uh, sales force. Uh, when I say way more to a factor of like 70 percent of all of our revenue is by customers and customer acquisition. And 30% comes from our sales force that consumes our products uh, as well as customers. But so that said, uh, in 2009, about to go out of business, 2010, we turned it around from 9 million in sales in 2009, if I recall, to 20 million in sales in 2010, 231 million in sales in 2011, 31 million in EBITDA, and 2012, 624 million in sales, 97 million in EBITDA, 120 million in cash, and the total buyout was 792.4 million, of which I got a lot of it. Um, uh, I then came on board to the publicly traded company. This is what I write about in Rock Bottom to Rockstar because I had planned to take my sales public. There was a billion five valuation attached to it. I filed under the Jobs Act of 2012. I had Wachtell as my attorneys, which are the biggest attorneys in the world, in New York, the best, I should say, not the biggest. And um, Jeffries is my underwriters, plus other banks, UBS, Chase, so forth. And right as I'm going out to the roadshow, the Herbalife scandal hits. My valuation multiples go from you know 16 times forward projected earnings down to like four. And my guaranteed buyout was better than the actual public offering. And thank God I didn't go public. It was a very difficult decision, but I canceled it. And that's, that's the type of stuff I write about in my new book. But anyways, I think that tells you the story of Vaisalis. Signed on as a publicly traded officer of the company. I became the second largest shareholder of Blythe on the NYSE. Um, you know, 
I'd had, you know, made a lot of cash and a lot of money. I was the fifth highest paid person in all of the SEC under 40. So anything, anybody who filed with the SEC under 40, I was number five. And that was just for my vice-house income, let alone, you know, all the other stuff that I was doing. And I, I don't share this to brag because, guys, I'm a, I, consider me an athlete. And I'm just telling you about some of the high-scoring games I've had. I've had plenty of low-scoring low games, too. Uh, so it might sound like I'm bragging, but you know, that, I'm just telling you about some of the good games I've had. There's been plenty of bad ones. No, that, uh, that helps a lot. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> I mean, maybe we should talk about some of the low-scoring games too, because yeah. you have a oh, pretty please. crazy story. Maybe we should start from the, you know, your background, and so yeah, just yeah. so people can get some context. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, uh, well, I guess the best way to structure this would be: uh, I started in the middle class. My dad was an engineer. He worked in the auto industry, and then moved the family from Detroit to. Uh, Los Angeles or uh, Los Angeles area to pursue the um, uh, aerospace industry as an engineer. I was born in Torrance. Uh, my dad was a military man and he was a disabled veteran, as was uh, my uncle, his twin brother, uh, both in the Vietnam uh, War. And both of them had Purple Hearts and had suffered greatly as a result of their service. My dad had a lot of mental traumas as a result of his service. But I, that said, I'm not an excuse maker. I know there's plenty of people that had it even worse that don't, you know, victimize and, and hurt their children and hurt their children's mother like my dad did. A very violent man. Uh, when I say very violent, you know, the most despicable things you can imagine. The, um, uh, at 13 years old, um, uh, my, uh, I told the principal. In fact, I, I don't know if I write about this or not. Nothing to lose. I, 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 told, I think I did. I told the principal that about the abuse that my dad was doing to my mom and my brothers and sisters and I, and she called social services and my dad fled and I never saw him again. Um, my mom then was forced, uh, having, I was the youngest of six. She'd never had a job. She was a homemaker to, uh, uh, get a job working minimum wage and move us into poverty. My middle-class structure and environment had been ripped away. All the things I valued, you know, the new toys under the Christmas tree, the new uh, clothing per school year, the, you know, all the stuff, the pool in the backyard, all the things that we had in the middle class were gone. And now all of a sudden I'm in poverty and I saw the bigotry associated with poverty and the very kids that were in the middle class that I used to, you know, play, you know, on the playground with now never want, not now didn't want anything to do with me. They'd make fun of me. Uh, and, it, and I saw just how the world changed with that economic situation In poverty. I got caught up in a gang. Uh, my sister, uh, Heidi is still in and out of prison. My brothers and sisters have all done time in prison with the exception of one um, who's like, you know, she's the only one that was like a good kid. Uh, all the rest of us were pretty bad kids. I ended up doing a couple stints in juvenile hall and uh, as well as arrested a number of times. Uh, but my racket was uh, I used to steal computers. That was my thing to do. And I learned to program them, rebuild them, take them apart uh, and try to figure out ways that I could sell them without having them traced back to where they were taken from. For those of you listening, I've since repented and I paid over a hundred million dollars in taxes. So I believe that everything happens for a reason. And, and I, and I, uh, I have a huge big, uh, heart for giving back to a number of different causes as a result of just the blessings I've received by having faced some adversity in some odd different ways. Um, but yeah. And then my mom at 17 years old meets a guy at the deli that she worked at. Um, he, uh, he falls in love with her. Uh, she's got a big problem though. Her son's facing four years in prison and, uh, and you know, and this guy lives on the other side of the tracks. He was a self-made, uh, multimillionaire in the real estate world, but he, he did it in low income housing. And so he was a real, you know, a roll up your sleeves, kind of do it yourself, uh, you know, uh, self-made kind of grinded out kind of entrepreneur. 
And um, he took an interest in trying to save me to try to somehow win my mother's uh, affection. And, and yeah, and like, I remember sitting down with him and him saying, look, I don't want anything to do with you, but I love your mother. And so I got to fix you in order to make sure that she can give me her time without having to worry about her son dying. You know, a number of our friends and family were murdered and drive-bys and all, and went to prison and all that good stuff. So, you know, that said, uh, at 17 years old, I made a decision that I was going to, to follow this man's lead, do whatever he told me to do, learn as much as I possibly could. And I started on a path to personal growth. He gave me, I couldn't read. I dropped out of high school my ninth grade year. I never passed a math test or math proficiency test or an English proficiency test to accelerate even beyond the freshman year of high school. And all of a sudden, this guy takes an interest in me. He said he thought I was smart, which I'd never heard anybody say. And he, um, uh, he taught me you know, real estate. Uh, he taught me how to shadow invest in equities. And uh, he taught me value systems and all these other things. And like the old proverb goes, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. Awesome. So, I mean, it seems like, I mean, you, you talk about, you know, uh, you talk about uh, the financial markets, you talk about equities, all, all these, all these different things. I mean, to, you know, to normal people, you know, the, their head's probably spinning. So if you were starting from scratch today, I mean, or knowing what you know right now, how would you go about learning this stuff perhaps yeah. online? Yeah. Well, you know, the, one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about um, teaching entrepreneurship is because it's not taught. Uh, so if you're out there, the reason why I write my books and the reason why podcasts like these exist and Eric, my hat's off to you over there. I mean, it's awesome that we're, we're able to teach people now better than ever. When I first started my career in 1996, there was no YouTube. There was no cell phones. I mean, certainly no text and SMS messages. Um, there was no uh, Facebook or blogs or email was just, just starting to be adopted. So communication as a whole was the written letter um, or the facts, uh, you know, if I recall. So, you know, now you can get access to mentors everywhere. You can, in fact, engage and create relationships with them. Before, I'd have to go to these networking events, chamber of commerce meetings, you know, everything I possibly could to try to gain access to mentors. And now you can get to people so much more efficiently. And the innate, and, you know, good people innately want to teach like I do and, you know, like you do, Eric, by doing this podcast. So, you know, um, you know, by just your question back to what should you do if you're just starting out is one, be a better student than you are a teacher, which is what I try to do every day. I learn every day. Like I was just meeting uh, today at my house with the owners of BitTorrent. I'm sure you're familiar with who BitTorrent is. And, you know, and we're looking at, you know, some of the opportunities within that company and its platform. And, you know, and I'm sitting there just taking notes, right? Because BitTorrent's got 1.5 billion users, 200 million monthly actives. And, the, you know, the owners of the, of the property or, or the company are sitting in my house today, right before I got on this to have a, a conversation about content and, you know, their new business plan and so forth. So, you know, I'm a student first and foremost, and that's what I recommend every one of you is. Uh, I, I'm a voracious consumer of content. I, I, I read uh, Wall Street Journal, uh, New York Times, uh, books, uh, uh, Forbes, Fortune, everything. I listen to every podcast I can get my hands on. And then I take what I learn and I teach it. And I think that's an important element as well for just starting out. And if you don't really, for example, if you don't, if you're just starting out, like you're on step one, take what you've learned from this podcast, write up a couple bullet points, and then go teach somebody else what you learned from this podcast. And when you do that, you'll start to crystallize your thinking on the subject. You'll get better at actually communicating it. And you'll start to make, uh, you know, you'll start to win friends and influence people, which is the key to building a business. Love it. Yeah. You know, I, I think the thing is there's so many quote unquote hacks nowadays. You talk about podcasts, there's audiobooks, there's Blinkist, which is like yeah. 10 minute book summaries. 
and it, it just, I mean, you can even email people like Ryan directly and they'll start to respond yep. to you, believe it or not. Um, and, and, and that's what it takes. I mean, you, you learn this stuff and then you go, you teach other people and then you become a connector and then things start to come to you. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? hundred yeah, percent. And you know, and, and I guess the most important thing for me, I, I've been blessed to meet a ton of mentors like coach John Wooden of UCLA fame. Uh, I had the privilege of spending some considerable time with him. Coach Dale Brown, the LSU legendary head coach, Shaquille O'Neal's mentor is like a father to me. He's the one who uh, got me in the book business. And, you know, and, um, and so when, when I do uh, connect to a mentor, I try to add them extreme value and I try to give them more value than I'm asking to receive immediately, knowing that the law of reciprocation, whether you're spiritual or not, you know, there's the old, you know, uh, uh, reaping and sowing spiritual uh, verse, but then there's this thing called the law of reciprocation, which states that the more that you give, the more that you receive. So I always just try to give an extreme amount of value without having, in many cases, any idea of how I'm going to receive uh, remuneration for that value regardless. And when I do that, it tends to come back to me in, in amazing ways, sometimes years down the road, sometimes never. But you know, all in all, I'm ahead only because I've got great mentors. I've been able to give them extreme value and I've been able to take what I've learned from those mentors and build great businesses and, and, and so forth. Love it. The secret to living is giving, right? Tony Robbins. Yeah. 100%. Great. Cool. So I want to dive back into the business for a second. Um, so you talked about going from $6 million in debt and then just making it, uh, I think, $200 plus million revenue machine. So, and you yeah, talked about $624 million in revenue, and now we're about to cross our $2 billion in sales. There you go. Uh, so what you, you talked about challenger marketing. Can you, can you give us Challenge, an example yeah. of what that is exactly? Yeah. So I own challenge.com. Um, uh, and the idea is, you know, and you guys have seen the Ice Bucket Challenge. A lot of those challenges out there have been inspired by uh, yours truly. Now, I can't take credit for all of them. Uh, I didn't invent the idea of creating a challenge. I invented the idea of it being the tip of the arrow of a marketing program, meaning there is nothing else that matters other than this challenge. And if you recall the Ice Bucket Challenge, it went like wildfire to support ALS. Basically, the challenge becomes you know, the, the thing that you're marketing. And then what happens is, is people donate as a result of that. And ALS raised something like $200 million out of nowhere. They went from 20 to 200 by simply taking what I had done in uh, consumer products and weight loss specifically, and then adopting it to charitable raising. And now you see the 22 push-up challenge, which is something that I do right now, for example. Uh, it's 22 push-ups in memory of those veterans that commit suicide every day. 22 of them commit suicide, if not more. And I literally, my workout program is I drop and give 22 every time I can think about it. Uh, and it's a challenge I'm doing. So human beings love a challenge. And also a challenge from a marketing standpoint is much more conversational. It's like if I told you, hey, I got this great nutritional product. You know, it's got all these vitamins and nutrients and it's got you know, 15 milligrams of this and 27 milligrams of that, low carbs and low sugar. You're going to tune me out, man. But if I say, yo, I got a challenge. I want to lose 20 pounds. Will you support me in doing it? You might be like, yeah, I'll do it with you. Right. And that's basically what we did is we we structured a challenge. We created a structure that was very conversational. And then we were the first to get people to use social media to share it. And it turned into, you know, uh, three million plus customers at an average of like one hundred and fifty bucks a customer uh, on a monthly recurring auto ship kind of business. And we're now in 15 countries and, you know, and so forth. Now, that said, we we saturated the market. Everybody had a challenge. Panera Bread had a challenge. Uh uh, Goals Gym has one. I mean, Chase did one. Everybody's got a challenge now. And so we've had to make some game time adjustments because, you know, I think if you're like me and you see another challenge pop up on your Instagram feed, you're probably going to delete the friend. You know what I mean? You're like, please, no more of this stuff. Uh, I know you I know you're doing the ice bucket challenge. Or I know you're doing the, 
you know, the no carb challenge or whatever the case is, but we're kind of sick and tired of it. So we've had to make some adjustments in terms of how we message that and how we language that and who we message it to and who we language it with. Got it. Okay. Makes sense. So that was kind of the driving lever to get you guys out of that hole, right? Yeah. Well, it was, it was focusing on the customer. It was focusing on the consumer where they were post recession. Uh, it was, it was sitting in a room with the people in the business and saying, there's got to be a new way to do business. We have to tear apart the business model we have. It's not working, but we know that there is an opportunity in the marketplace because of this. And the cool thing about a recession or what's going on right now with the elections and so forth is there's so much opportunity, more opportunity comes during bad times than there than comes during good times. Right. So during bad times, like Walt Disney, uh, you know, it's founded, uh, you know, Disney, uh, you know, you look at some of the various great companies that are out there. They came during or they were inspired out of the Great Depression or some of the other uh, times where people were really struggling because where most people during, a, you know, a, a bad situation or a rock bottom situation, like I like to call it, whether it be a macro rock bottom like America, it might be going through with specific uh, issues or it might be, a, a, you know, an individual rock bottom. From that, you can get strength, you can get clarity, you can get you know, passion, you can get ambition. And you can take that nothing to lose mindset and you can really win. And so not all, we came up with a good idea, but it was because nobody, everybody else had stopped innovating in our space because they were all trying to figure out, you know, how to save their asses as opposed to, you know, build a new business, which is what we did. Got it. Okay. And, and just backing up a second, even more, I mean, Vaisalis as a company, how do you guys make money? Uh, we ship products. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, we make, um, uh, so we sell we sell meals, drinks, snacks, and supplements. Um, now you might not be aware of this, but there's other brands. Like for example, we bought Neon Energy Drink. You might have seen that. Uh, I bought the company in uh, December of 2015. Uh, I bought it for a cash, a small cash deal. I think it was like 300,000. I love buying consumer product companies because I had built-in distribution. Year one, it did five million in sales. Year two, it's going to do even more, and um, it's got a you know great profit margin, a seventy-five percent gross profit margin, and uh, it's a fantastic product. I love it. I'm actually drinking it right now, and if I'm talking fast, it's because not only is it good for you, but it gets your energy going, and uh, and you know and we buy a lot of companies like that. So Vicelis became a house of brands, um, uh, you know, and, and Challenge.com, for example, is one of those brands. Vi.com, Vi.com. Uh, and then we have neon energy drink, uh, and we have, we bought vibe go bites. Uh, we've got a couple of, we got a number of different brands, uh, that we've been involved in and we bought and acquired and sold and so forth. Got it. Okay. So if somebody, you know, somebody the an entrepreneur in the audience, they're like, Hey, you know, I want to be like Ryan too. I want to go buy some companies. How do you go about it? What's the process? Well, so I learned how to buy companies by, um, uh, well, one, I, one, you build a company. It depends on if you got cash. To buy a company, you know, one cash they've sold, they yeah. ha- they've had a couple exits, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, the reason why I write my books and and did my documentary is I want to be the next Sean Parker to the next Mark Zuckerberg, right? I want to work. You know, Elite Daily, for example, they bought my book. Uh, Gerard did. It, he became a bit of a bible for him, so to speak. He started Elite Daily. He mentioned me in an article. My Google alert pops off. You know, yes, I've got an ego, but I do track when my name is mentioned out there. Uh, just to make sure that it's not, you know, Gawker Media or something like that, giving me a hard time like to have. <laughs> and uh, that said, I, uh, uh, I I find out who these kids are. I saw I went and met them in New York because I was there for a media event or doing some press. 
And uh, I loved what they were up to. And so I was their founding investor. So I guess if you got cash and you want to buy a company, there's a number of ways to do it. There's brokers, there's advisories and so forth. I prefer to buy companies or invest in companies after meeting the entrepreneur, spending a considerable amount of time with them and using and loving their products. Like I got to love their stuff so much so that I can't find a way not to drink the like neon. I loved it so much. I kept telling the entrepreneur as we were talking about a potential deal to send me more. And one night, in fact, I'll never forget this. I was sleeping and it was getting close to like daylight. My house is up in the hills in the Hollywood. You could see, you know, the sun rises and, you know, the, the house, all of a sudden gets lit. And I know that the sun's coming up. And I, the first thought in my head is I want a neon. And so I thought to myself, I got to get this company after that. After, you know, if I'm in, if I'm sleeping and my body wants this thing, I'm, I'm trying to get the company. There's a few that I've, I bought that have worked. There's a few that I bought that haven't worked. Uh, so if you got cash out there and you want to buy a company, you know, read my book because I've certainly failed a number of times on the subject uh, or reach out to people uh, that are in the venture space or in the private equity space as I am. And then let's, you know, we could talk about it. Got it. Love it. And just to give a, a side recommendation um, for those of you that uh, we, we have another podcast called Marketing School, but, um, you know, there's a site called FE International that we talk about uh, quite a bit there. So it's F as in Fred, E as in Eric International. I'm not affiliated at all, but they have a lot of great sites up there for for sale if you're interested in buying uh, internet companies. Um, it's called FE. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, FE, FE International. Yeah, if you want an intro, happy to give you the intros yeah, there too. that'd be awesome. I'd love yeah. to check it out. Great, man. Um, so when you when you first started Vaisalis, I mean, how did you go about acquiring, let's just say, your first thousand customers? Yeah. Um, all right, interesting. My first thousand customers. Well, month one of Vaisalis, uh, we did about 20,000 in sales, and we did it the hard way. Uh, you know, um, I had, I had uh, some strong knowledge because at Sky Pipeline, I had a pretty good sized sales force. So I had some strong knowledge of sales, of influence. I'd been a huge fan of Tony Robbins and I'd studied every book on sales that you could imagine. I've read a ton of them because early on in my career, I realized that if I master sales and, and then, you know, sales, basically marketing exists to create sales. And a lot of marketers out there don't, you know, they don't realize that they think, you know, marketing is the most important thing. And then sales come if you're a great marketer, marketing, marketing exists to create sales. So I mastered sales and then I had to master marketing. And I, when I say master, master it for that point in time, but it changes so fast that you gotta, you know, you gotta continue. Uh, you gotta basically learn every day about this subject. That's why I'm happy to be on the show. Um, and be a part of the community on this show because I learn a lot about, you know, new technologies and so forth. But we got our first thousand customers the hard way. We basically, uh, and this was before you had, you know, significant autoresponder programs and nurturing programs and email drip systems and mobile apps and all this stuff. We went out there, we talked to everybody we know, we sold all of our friends and family to, to join us as at that time we called them distributors. Now we call them promoters. We taught them to set up events in their homes, their gyms and living rooms to expose people to our uh, healthy lifestyle and to our products. Uh, we got our first thousand customers by basically, you know, and we, at the time we were so young, we wore suits and ties because we thought that was the only way people would find us to be credible. Um, so I'd be like, I'd be at Ross Dresserless wearing a suit and tie, driving, you know, sweating, driving around all of uh, Southern California, uh, you know, meeting people in their homes, uh, doing one-on-one -on -one meetings, uh, you know, signing up people at lunch and then inviting them to an event at a house for dinner and then asking them to bring their friends and family with them to then uh, present to them, you know, our products and get them to become customers. So it was really it was a grind. And I remember we used paper applications at the time. And I remember like we me and my co-founders would uh, 
call each other up after each night and we talk about, you know, who got the most uh, sales and, you know, who had the best experience and, you know, and what was the best testimony. And then we go back at it and try to win the next day. And we did it every single day. And eventually that hard work uh, turned into, you know, two, nearly $2 billion worth of those, you know, very customers um, uh, today. Love it. Okay. Sounds like a lot of hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, uh, it was. Yeah, we're, we're better at hand-to-hand. You know, I, 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 I'm smarter now. I got a seven-year-old boy. I don't have much time to tour and that type of stuff. With my next book coming out, I will tour a bit. Uh, so if you, know, you ever want me to stop by one of your events or anything like that, I'm open to it. But you know, I, I like hand-to-hand combat, but I, I much prefer doing stuff remotely now and to be able to spend some time with my boy as well. Yeah. Great. So two billion in sales, I mean, what's the most effective thing you're doing today in terms of customer acquisition? Uh, most effective thing I'm doing today in terms of customer acquisition. Well, I, so we, we, um, as we've grown up, so the challenge that we started, it was called the body by by 90 day challenge. Uh, it, you know, it, a lot of people will know about it. Um, you know, millions of customers joined it and, uh, lots of pounds, millions of pounds lost, lots of results. That was an individual challenge. So now we're doing a family challenge and, uh, in essence, meaning we get the, we're trying to get the whole family healthy. And that's a product of myself and my two co-founders. You know, we are now family men. I got a seven-year-old boy and, you know, and my book is called Rock Bottom to Rockstar. And the rockstar part of it, I've lived the rockstar life, believe me. Now I just want to, you know, uh, take my son off the grid to my, you know, my cabin in northern Arizona and, uh, and, you know, and make sure that my family is getting the right education, the right, you know, nutrition to be, to have the right education. And so we're really leading with those values now. So I guess I would say values-driven marketing initiatives uh, where we're really trying to create value, but we're trying to do so in a way that we know we receive value from. So I'm not coming up with an idea to target people and extract money out of their pockets. I'm coming up with what I need as a family, products that I consume. Like, for example, the cereal product that we did, which has done over 30 million in sales in a single SKU. And for those of you on the phone here, that if you know consumer products, to introduce a cereal in a, a declining $10 billion marketplace and still be able to do 30 million in sales uh, I think we had 25 million in our first year. You know, that puts us in the top 100 SKUs in cereal. Um, yeah. And, and you know how that product got invented? My son has autism. So he has sensory deprivation. Specifically, he does not like to eat protein and he doesn't like to eat it in the morning. And so he was skinny. And so he would eat like fruity pebbles. And so I got our R&D team and I got in the lab and I said, hey, let's create something that my son will think is a fruity pebble and all the kids for that matter, with low sugar, high protein, you know, vitamins and nutrients. So that way when I send my son off, you know, in the morning, I know that I'm doing, I'm doing so, tricking him into eating a good tasting, healthy cereal. And that's why the product took off. So our product innovation, our marketing and messaging, all of that comes from what we need as individuals. And then we try to look at the you know, like we're not trying to build rocket ships here. We're trying to build for the mass market. And then from there, we try to find ways to price it to meet the needs of millions of people, not necessarily just, you know, the people that have the money. Got it. Okay. Uh, jumping back a second, I mean, I want to talk about your life, you know, on the streets, yeah. you know, being in a gang and, and all that. I mean, how does life on the streets, you know, what have you learned from that? And how does it translate into the world of business or just life in general, I guess? Yeah, well, so what people, there's a great documentary by the, uh, called Freakonomics. It's named after the book, and it's by the, uh, the authors of the book, Freakonomics. And in it, and I'll never forget seeing this, uh, he profiles his, uh, his research that he did. He's you know, an economist on gangs. And I think the topic was, a gang is the lowest paid job in America. Uh, and, you know, and so he walks through how they had uh, met this gang, 
They had basically researched it, and the gang opened up all their books, the data, the facts, the hierarchies, and so forth. All a gang is is an illegal enterprise. It is just like any legal enterprise anybody sets up. And in a gang, you learn things, though, that they don't teach you in business school. That's why the subtitle of my book is, you know, the, 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 lesson, you know, the hard knock lessons that they don't teach you in business school. Um, uh, so uh, in essence, what you learn in a gang, though, is, you know, various fundamentals of influence because you have to to survive. You learn to read people. Um, like, you know, I got to know if this person's going to kill me or if this person's going to turn on me or rat on me or if this person's a cop. You got you learn um, to understand who's strong, who's not, who's dangerous. The reason why Nothing to Lose was titled Nothing to Lose uh, was because the people I feared the most were the ones that would kill you. You know, the people that their eyes, they read like, you know, they had no they had no remorse when it came to killing. Somebody. Do you have an Not- example of this? I think a, a great story would be gr- perfect here. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll tell you one. So I, I was a fighter as a kid, uh, as a white kid in a, a Latin environment. You know, they picked on me a lot and uh, I beefed up heavy. I got up to like 260 pounds at one point um, and I would fight. I'd fight every single day to prove myself. And, you know, I fought not to fight, basically. Um, and uh, one day I got in a fight with a guy and he was uh, an older guy. I think I was about 16. And he was um, I don't know, he was uh, maybe around 25 and he said he'll come back and he wanted to meet me, you know, at another place in time. Now, I was smart enough not to take that that deal because clearly he had, you know, he had a plan and he came back and shot five of my friends. Um, and, you know, and, and I thought to myself, man, I'm one second away from being murdered. And that's the most that's the most scary thing you can have as a person with nothing to lose out there. And that was one of the big key decision points in my life to say, I need to get out of here because, you know, my poor mother's going to have a dead kid. My other brothers and sisters have been in prison and whatnot, and I didn't want, did not want my mom to, you know, have to lose her boy because she cared a lot about me. I was her only, you know, I was our last and only one in the house at that time, and so I, uh, I made a change for her as much as anything else. Wow, it's powerful, man. Yeah, okay. thank you. And I think that leads to another thing I have in the notes right here. It's the art of compartmentalization. Can you talk about yeah. that? Yeah. So uh, I stumbled upon this compartmentalization is something I write about heavily. Um, uh, I stumbled upon it when, after I wrote Nothing to Lose in 2010, uh, I didn't know that my company was going to skyrocket. Uh, I didn't know that that my book would become an international bestseller and, you know, and, and have all this notoriety. I didn't know that my son was going to be diagnosed with autism, which in the documentary, Nothing to Lose, that you mentioned earlier, Eric, you can actually see me learning of his diagnosis as I'm on the, as I'm, you know, launching the book. So I'm going through a launch. I thought that the cameras were on me to kind of document the launch because I thought it might be an interesting product um, or it'd just be fascinating for all of us to see if I, you know, if I failed or not. So I had my friend basically filming me and he, as I learned, I was a New York Times bestselling author. I get in the car, I take a call from my son's mother and I learned of my son's autism. From there, my mother had fallen down a flight of stairs a few months earlier in March of 2010. Uh, and, uh, and so I was dealing with massive success and I was dealing with my son's autism and my mother being in a coma for two years straight. I mean, she was a vegetable in bad shape, a huge brain injury. She still is. In fact, as I talk to you right now, uh, she's in the ICU and I'm waiting to hear if I have a mother or not at the end of this telephone call or some, or this the podcast, I should say. And I'm sure I'll get the telephone call soon, but she's got nine lives. So I'm, I'm positive, like, you know, and so forth. But that said, compartmentalization is in, I mean, I, I, the reason why I've given you this, this whole long uh, rant about it is I'm compartmentalizing right now as we speak. 
So my mom, I was in the ICU last night and it was gruesome and it's bad. And we have a do not resuscitate because of her condition. And so I, you know, I think the end is near, but the man upstairs is up to that. And my mom doesn't seem to want to go just yet. And she's been, you know, she's been out of the hospital for about, uh, since 2013. So about three years now she's been out of the hospital. Uh, and now she's back in. So we'll see what my future holds, but you have to be able to compartmentalize. And what it is, is it's a, it's a coping strategy for trauma, but it's also a great strategy for managing work-life balance. So right now, in the event that I was overwhelmed in the grief and emotion, like I was last night seeing my mom, I couldn't do this podcast with you, you know? I couldn't, I was just on the Discovery Channel earlier this morning. I have to be able to shut off that emotional compartment and then reopen it so that way I can feel and that way I can, you know, and, and be there for my family. But you have to learn how to open and close compartments. And to give you a simple analogy, you might have 24 hours a day and you might have your compartments open for 30 minutes at a time on a variety of subjects. When you're faced with trauma, though, compartmentalization is not only a great tool, but you get this extreme focus when you close a compartment and open up another one because you have no control over the next what's going to happen after I. So like after this podcast, I'm going to shut this off, right? This compartment of, you know, make sure I give you as much value and your listeners as much value as I can, which is my objective. I'm going to shut that compartment down and I might all of a sudden be hit with bad news that makes me open up another compartment or I might not receive to digest that bad news right then and there because I've got another appointment and I have to open up a different compartment. So it is a very technical thing and it's, it's a very, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a subject that's used in psychology and psychotherapy to deal with people dealing with traumas, but it's highly effective when it comes to managing a business, especially a large one, when you might be faced with a lot of bad news uh, all the time, which is what happens. The bigger you are, there's never a day where bad news doesn't happen. I'll, I'll just share with you one last point on the subject. Uh, I was invited to the White House not too long ago on, from the Obama administration, and I got to see the man at work. You know, and Regardless of your politics, I was just pinching myself. I'm an ex-gang member. I didn't even think the Secret Service would let me in, let alone I'm sitting here watching this man work. And I couldn't imagine his job and what he has to understand each day, right? Like there's stuff going on and he has to somehow find ways, you know, to deal with it. You know, he's having to deal with, you know, murders and mass suicides and terrorists and nuclear threats and Trump and Clinton and whatever he's got to deal with. Every day of the week, he receives a national security threat. That, that's what they told me. And he has to deal with it. So you got to learn how to open up and close those compartments in order to have true fulfillment, but also be able to get stuff done and not let bad news kill your business. Love it. Ryan, thanks so much for, I mean, yeah. being vulnerable there and, and, and for sharing because I, I think, you know, yeah. nobody's actually opened up that much. So, you know, this is going to be it's super, super powerful. Yeah, um, awesome. Thank, you know, that's what I write about, man. I'm, I'm probably the only business person that, you know, that, that talks transparently. I mean, I'm, I'm, legends are made of vulnerable men is what my grandmother told me a long time ago. And so, you know, I'll hold back the tears as, as long as I possibly can. But, you know, we're all human beings. So I, I love to share who I am, because a lot of times people, we hear superheroes on these shows and we don't realize that, hey, behind the scenes, this person's got some struggles because we all got them, but a lot of people just suppress them. And that's why Rock Bottom to Rockstar was so important to me is I wanted people to share their struggles and then I wanted to be able to provide mentorship and help for those people having them. Great. Couple more questions for you, Ryan, uh, before we before we hop off here. So, I, I mean, one thing, you know, some of you in the audience are probably thinking, well, you know, I, I've been fortunate and for, for myself, I can speak for myself. 
I've been very lucky. You know, I, I grew up middle class. You know, have great friends. Everything. Nothing's really, really bad has happened to me. So um, the, the thing that I would recommend, if, if your life has just kind of been smooth sailing, um, if you want to learn how to perhaps compartmentalize, you know, one thing that's helped me a lot is well, I played a lot of poker in, in college, yeah. and I'm not going to even compare it to kind of what you went through. But yeah, yeah. you know, in poker, you're going to go through a lot of crap. Even if you play your A game, you know, for for months, you're gonna you can just lose, right? It just doesn't yeah. matter. Um, yeah. And that's what happened. So you know, if you want a practical tip, that would be it. But um, Ryan, another question for you would be, um, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, I get that question a lot. So, um, I, I, and I write about this as well. I say, pay attention to your timeline. I made a lot of decisions with short-term thinking because I didn't have belief and confidence in myself. So when I was 25 years old, you know, um, I, you know, I spent money. Didn't, I didn't think I should you know, be playing for when I'm 35 years old. When I'm 35 years old, I should be playing for when I'm 65 years old. And when I'm 65 years old, I should be playing with hopefully God willing and modern technology and our great products. I'm playing until I'm 95 years old. So play a long game. Focus on long term. Get your hours in. I got my 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, talks about 10,000 hours being the pivotal thing for you to become a professional. Now, a professional entrepreneur is a person who makes full-time wages, meaning they're paying their bills by being an entrepreneur. It doesn't mean you're a millionaire. You know, if you can be a professional entrepreneur making 50,000 a year, that means you don't have a job and you're making enough money to pay your bills. You're a pro. Congratulations, because most people don't, they're not able to do that. That means that they're in the amateur league, so to speak. Not necessarily that they're an amateur, because I started there and I worked my way into the pros and now I'm, you know, in the, you know, in the league, so to speak, in terms of people that have, you know, done hundreds of millions of dollars worth of, you know, uh, wealth creation and so forth. Now that said, I'm not in the same league as Mark Zuckerberg or, or the founders of Google, but I plan to be, or I'll die trying. So my long, my, my older self tells my younger self, and I tell myself this today, I'm still young. I'm just starting and I got to play a long game. Pay attention to your timeline. It's going to feel like ups and downs to use your poker analogy. I'll tell you a blackjack analogy. You know, if I won 20 hands in a row, I can't believe I'm going to win for the next 20. Right. So you got to prepare for, you know, a losing streak as well as winning streaks. Now, when you, when you got and you got to work your ass off to get the momentum to get on a winning streak. But once you get on that winning streak, don't believe your own hype. You know, save up as much as you can for when you do have a losing streak and try to humble yourself daily. So that way, you know, you can play a, as long of a game as you possibly can, because, as you know, with poker, it's not the person that's the best. It's the person that stays the longest, particularly if you're playing, you know, uh, like I do, where, you know, we might go 36 hours straight. Uh, right. It's not like the best guy in the room is the guy who's got the most stamina and, and doesn't make the most mistakes. So, uh, you know, that's that's what I would share with the team is just focus on the, sh- the long term, not the short term, because if you put your 10,000 hours in and you're 25, you can get 10,000 hours in, in five years. Right. And, you know, you could do it faster, but you could do it in five years. Most individuals uh, work 2000 hours a year in their job, but they're not really working or applying it to their profession. So if you figure you put 2,000 hours a year, which is only 40 hours a week, plus you have a full-time job, which is 40 hours a week, you could still put 2,000 hours into your entrepreneurial endeavors. And within five years, you could be a professional entrepreneur and quit that job. That's the advice I give uh, to, to you know, a millennial or anybody out there that has a job that wants to go off on their own someday, get your hours in. You got to get your hours in. Love it. All about the long game, all about persistence. Okay. Yeah. So I want to talk about your book right after this question. But so besides your book, what's one must read book that you'd recommend to everyone? Uh, the tipping point was a big one for me because, you know, I, I, every one of us wants that coveted tipping point. I've had a few of them in my career and it's so badass. Like when, you know, when all your hard work starts to tip and you get through and you start to get like you start with, 
you know, your first customers and then you see the next customers coming in and next thing you know, you have a sensation on your hands. The tipping point would be foundational. That's by Malcolm Gladwell. It came out a long time ago, uh, but it, it's a great, a great uh, book. Um, I, I read, you know, the Steve Jobs biography would be another one. Uh, I watch all the documentaries I can get my hands on. Geffen's documentary was pretty interesting to me. It's on, um, I believe it's on Netflix or certainly it's on iTunes. Uh, how David Geffen built a multi-billion-dollar enterprise by just hustling. Uh, so I, you know, those would be the those would be some of the content sources I would seek. But documentaries are the one that I spend a lot of time on, and I've I've made a few, and I have uh, an investment in the documentary production company now to to bring out more really cool docs. Awesome, great. So let's talk about your book now. Okay. What's your book about? What are you trying to? I guess you know what's the message that you're trying to send to people? Yeah. So uh, the book it's on sale. Uh, uh, October the 4th, I have to tell you, please buy it. Here's why. The more people that spread the word about this, the more that I'm able to help. Um, I've donated a significant sum of my worth to, to charities. And with Rock Bottom to Rockstar, the message is real simple. I want people to understand that what weakens you strengthens you. And so a rock bottom moment, whether you're going through one now or you're about to be faced with one, because we'll all have them. You're going to lose the loved one. You're going to go through perhaps a breakup issue. You're going to have uh, an outside force like bad, you know, the, the macroeconomic investment or economy or whatever it is might knock your business down or you might have to file a bankruptcy or whatever the case is. It's going to happen. We all have to be you know, knocked down in order to strengthen ourselves. And on the rock star side of it, my objective is to create a whole new classification around the word rock star, not just the people on the stage holding a mic, although I, you know, I have a lot of friends that, that do just that. and they're, they're fantastic at it. I want to acknowledge the rock star single mother who utilizes business and entrepreneurship to take care of their kid. I want to create a whole new classification of rock stars. I mean, people on this very podcast that are rock stars going above and beyond that are changing their life, whether they came from the middle class, the wealthy class or, uh, or poverty, you know, they're going to create a legacy. And those are the people that I want to work with and I want to acknowledge and I want to, you know, make sure that the world sees a lot more of. I profile a lot of people in, in Rock Bottom to Rockstar that you've never heard of that have done spectacular things just because, you know, I want to show that, that the rock stars aren't just the Mark Zuckerbergs out there. There's a lot of guys like you, Eric, that are freaking rock stars, killing it right now. And I want to profile that. Great. Okay, so Rock Bottom, the rock star, we're going to drop it in the show notes. I'm assuming it's on Amazon? Yep, it's on, it's on Amazon. Everywhere books are sold. If you go to rockbottomtorockstar.com, you can find it there too. Got it. And where else can people find you online? Uh, RyanBlair.com is the simplest. All my links to social are there. Uh, I engage pretty heavily. So if you want to reach out to me, and then, you know, be persistent, though. You know, I get uh, lots of emails. Uh, you could get me at rjb at nothingtolose.com. I read most every one of them. Uh, I do get a lot of business plan submissions, which I love. I can't necessarily help everybody because not all I'm not an expert in all businesses. Uh, but I love to learn. And uh, I am available on, limited, on a limited basis to those people that have got some great ideas if they want to reach out. Awesome, Brian. This has been fantastic. The fact yeah. that I've done this for over, we, we went over quite a bit, but yeah, uh, it's, cool. it's been a really powerful one. Thanks so much. Awesome, man. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week. and.